Welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians can't venture outside the traditional clinical or research career path. My name's Shad, and I'm an MD and Harvard MBA student interested in healthcare investing and innovation. And my name is Alex. I'm an MD finishing up study at Oxford Harvard Business School in Stanford, and I'm interested in healthcare investing and entrepreneurship. Our guest today is Dr. Iman Abu Zaid. She's the co-founder and CEO of Incredible Health, a digital platform designed to streamline the hiring and recruitment process for nurses. Iman holds an MD from University College London Medical School and an MBA from Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. Iman, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. We've been really, really excited for this conversation for quite a while. And it was such a pleasure to, to delve into your background, your history, and all the incredible things that you've done, aptly named. You started a company called Incredible Health. So we'll, we'll talk about all of that stuff, but let's start from the very beginning. You know, when I was researching for this interview, uh, I came across a quote that kind of stuck with me, and, and it's a quote from you. You say, you want to make sure the ship is pointed in the right direction before you depart. I just found that very intriguing. And your journey sort of defines the whole off the beaten path concept. That's the whole reason we started this podcast. So for those in our audience who might be unfamiliar with your story, can you take us through your childhood, growing up in Saudi Arabia, going to medical school, and eventually going off the traditional clinical path? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I'm originally from Sudan. Uh, that's where my parents are from. It's where I, I guess that's uh, my, where I, de- I identify being from. And uh, I was, I also grew up in Saudi Arabia. So I lived there as an expat, um, went to the American International School there, which is why I sound like this. Uh, and so elementary, middle school, high school was, was in Riyadh. Uh, I then moved to the UK, uh, to London specifically to pursue uh, my undergraduate and medical studies. And that's where I went to medical school. Uh, that's where I have my MD from. And uh, after med school, decided to move, immigrate to the U.S. Uh, so I moved to, the, to New York City when I was 24 years old. And it was really at that point that I uh, decided that I did not want to pursue a career, a traditional career in medicine. Um, don't get me wrong. Like working as a doctor is fantastic. It's a great career. One-on-one patient care is amazing. But I really wanted to make an impact sort of on a larger scale and, and find ways to, um, you know, have an impact a, 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 on an entire health system or, in, or the health care of an entire country. But I really was, at that point, I really wasn't sure what that meant, right? Like, and how I could pursue that. So initially went into management consulting, um, worked at Booz Allen, worked at McKinsey, uh, you know, where I was really doing a lot of hospital operations work and hospital strategy work, uh, then decided to pursue my MBA at Wharton. And uh, the Wharton MBA is where I really got exposed to more entrepreneurs um, in my, in my personal and professional network, um, many of whom were my classmates. Um, Similarly, you know, like my my grandfathers in Sudan, both grandfathers in Sudan were entrepreneurs as well. So, you know, like it was, they were inspiring figures for me, I guess. And I sort of had this like opinion or that I don't impose on anyone, of course, but like, it's just like a personal opinion that I think the epitome of what you can do with a career in business is to pursue entrepreneurship. And because of the enormous amount of impact that you can have. And uh, so after my um, MBA, I decided to move to the, to the San Francisco Bay Area, which is like the world capital for tech or for software at that time. Maybe that has changed now, <laughs> but certainly in, in, you know, in 2013, 14, it was definitely the case. And so moved out here. But the thing is, like, I didn't have any 
sure, I had this medical background, I had business background, but like the MBA specifically, but I didn't really know that much about software. And I uh, decided to join an early stage healthcare technology company as a product manager. And that's really where I learned to work with software engineers, designers, data scientists, you know, et cetera. And that's like where I learned to create software products in healthcare and what it takes to uh, launch these products and they have them adopted and, 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 and grow a business. And uh, so after doing that for a couple of years left with uh, the senior so with the senior software engineer that I worked with, Rome Portlock, who is my, my co-founder at Incredible Health. And so that's how we, we, that's how we met. We were co-workers and decided to co-found this company together. So that brings, that's like the history up until um, Incredible Health starting. Yeah. Yeah, no, thank you for giving us a broad overview of the last uh, many years, it, it seems like. There's just so much to reflect on there, uh, Iman. Um, the first thing I want to point out is just the geographical diversity of your experiences, whether in New York, SF, or Sudan, and Saudi Arabia. It's very similar here at HBS, and I imagine at Wharton as well. My wife always jokes around that at HPS, if you haven't lived in five different countries, you're not very interesting. <laughs> There's something to be said about the fact that all these international experiences, I mean, you bring every element of your international experience with you. And, and I always say, I grew up in Bangladesh and Canada. People ask me, what culture do you identify with? I say both, all of the above. Uh, I take bits and pieces of, quote unquote, every culture, what, what I identify with the most and create my own culture sort of speak. And so really appreciate that point. I think the other thing I wanted to mention is you called entrepreneurship as the epitome of a business. I find that very intriguing. And it's something that I've thought a lot about. Just some stats that that may be familiar, something like eight to 10% of HBS students after like directly post HBS pursue entrepreneurship. But if you look at a long enough timeline of 40, 50 years after HBS, in an alum's lifetime, it, the number is like 70, 80%. So almost everyone in some capacity jumps into entrepreneurship after HBS. It might not be right after because the risk appetite or the skill set that you need might, at least from a perception perspective, might not be there. But I certainly tend to agree that entrepreneurship is in some ways the epitome there. You mentioned consulting and uh, your MBA. So let's talk about that. As you pointed out, both your grandparents were entrepreneurs and, and they've been a main inspiration behind your entrepreneurial journey. And most entrepreneurs we speak with have said that they've gotten the bug from, you know, their family, school, work, uh, you know, wherever it is. And I speak with a lot of docs who have the ambition to perhaps build their own company, but may feel unprepared to make that jump right now. And you got an MBA and, and worked in consulting before building your own company how did those experiences help you? And, and do you think getting those experiences are necessary before jumping into entrepreneurship? Yeah, great question. So like, I, I, will never, I would never ever say anything is necessary <laughs> before jumping into entrepreneurship. At the end of the day, there are 2,000 ways to get to the same goal, uh, especially if the goal is starting a company and, and, and growing a company and having a, high, a, high, you know, a huge impact. Um, so I wouldn't say anything is particularly required or necessary. But for me, for me personally, um, it did help, right? Um, medical school and the MD in general does provide credibility, uh, you know, whether we deserve it or not, it does help. Um, and, uh, you know, that shows, that shows up in a couple of different ways. You know, when you're speaking with hospital executives or uh, when you are raising venture capital, et cetera, like having an MD does give some level of credibility. Uh, and then the second thing is the, 
the skill set learned in management consulting and, and, you know, throughout the MBA as well was helpful, right? Like I, I did learn the basics of, account, of accounting and finance, which I use every day. I did learn the basics of negotiations. I took that with Adam Grant. I won't, won't forget that class, right? At Wharton that I use literally every day because, you know, you're interacting with um, candidates you're trying to convince to join your team, um, the press, uh, customers, investors, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, and then for management consulting specifically, you know, learning market analysis, competitive analysis, like just understanding how to put together business cases and returns on investment is critical if you're building a company in, in healthcare software. I mean, say like the number one most important thing you have to do as a healthcare software entrepreneur is make sure that your product has a really, really strong ROI, an extremely strong business case, because everything in healthcare is about either reducing costs, improving access, or improving quality. And so your product needs to vary very definitively have an impact on one of those three. And I, I would argue if you have an impact on costs, like you're ahead of the game too. Um, so that's, you know, those are different ways that, that it, that's helped me. Yeah, very insightful, Iman. And, and we talk a lot about what MDs can bring to the table in a, in a sort of holistic business context. Obviously, there's a lot of transferable skills. And we were talking to Elizabeth Rosenthal, the, the best-selling author of, of An American Sickness and, and now a journalist. But she was an ED doc, uh, and and she talks about when young journalists come to her and ask her for advice. She actually relates it back to a lot of the experiences she had as an ED doc in a very, very busy ED. Like you meet your patient, you have 20 minutes to establish camaraderie and figure out, you know, what's wrong and and then do the the diagnostic tests and the therapeutic interventions needed to help them. And uh, some of those transferable skills she's been able to use in journalism. And so I, I just would have never made that connection. But I, I think there's something to be said that uh, there's there's a lot of unique skills uh, that you have as an MD and the credibility aspect. But you still need to round out your skill set. And management consulting, for example, is historically known to be a great way to do that. But it doesn't have to be management consulting. It could be in investing. It could be in finance. It could be, um, you know, operating experience as a product manager in a startup. And that's something that we emphasize to our audience quite a bit. You know, pivoting here a little bit to talking about uh, mentorship, because it's historically been very important for both Alex and me as we've made the pivot to our non-clinical careers. Uh, you know, there's a whole community out there of physicians trying to expand their roles and and break new ground and achieve impact uh, in ways that's, you know, non-traditional for typical MDs. And there's a constant conversation there around mentorship and its role in helping young doctors find their purpose. And in your view, uh, what role has mentorship played in your own journey, and, and perhaps if you can call out some of your most important mentors that have helped you get to where you are, and, and how do you think about mentoring the next generation of young professionals, clinicians specifically? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, of course, uh, the, I have several mentors that have influenced me like along the way. Um, I'll, I'll mention, there's too many to mention, but I'll just mention a couple. Um, uh, Adam Grant at, at at Wharton was, you know, a, a mentor of mine, and he he played a role in 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 enabling me to break into Silicon Valley. Okay, so the 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 tech community in the Bay Area is a relatively closed community, to be honest, right? And 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 the way to get in is through networking. And um, he introduced me to the first like Silicon Valley Bay area based investors that I had ever met. Right. Um, and that was like the beginning, right. Cause of those, you know, those first 
two or three investors that I met op- opened up like the whole the whole network for me. Um, a- another another set of mentors are um, you know uh, James Courier at, at NFX, um, James Joaquin at Obvious Ventures, and Jeff Jordan at Andreessen Horowitz. I tend to gravitate towards advisors, mentors, and frankly investors. Two of those are our board members um, who are former operators uh, and former CEOs. And uh, when when it comes to Understanding, understanding the psychology of being a CEO, of being a founder, of starting something from scratch, of needing to you know, build a team, sell, you know, figure out strategy, et cetera. They have been some of my strongest mentors and advisors um, in order to just determine what to do, right? And uh, nothing beats a, a former CEO at the end of the day uh, when, when you're pursuing entrepreneurship. Um, so those, yeah, as far as like what I... Uh, the mentorship I, I can provide or advice I provide to other clinicians. Um, I tend to gravitate towards clinicians who have already decided to make the leap uh, into entrepreneurship. Uh, a lot of that just has to do with time, frankly. Like there's only so many hours in a day. Um, so I probably spend, I don't know, it's, it's 1% of my time on, on just helping out other founders. And so I tend to not spend too much time with clinicians who are still haven't made that decision. I'll be perfectly honest. I find, um, I'm generalizing, of course, but I find medical doctors and and to some extent MBA students to be particularly risk averse. And I I find that risk aversion to be unjustified in a lot of ways. Um, Because frankly, for people who are so well-educated, so smart, who have great skill sets in the US, you know, which is an extremely advanced economy (laughs) where like, you know, raising capital is an option. Uh, doing business, frankly, in this country is particularly easy and straightforward. Um, why not take the leap? You know, uh, and uh, honestly, the bigger risk is to stay in a career that you're not particularly satisfied with, right? That's the bigger risk. That's a, that's a that's an opportunity cost right there. If you're if you're deciding to stay, you know, pursuing a residency that you're not particularly excited about, right? Or uh, or you're deciding to stay for the MBA students, or you're deciding to stay at Google or Facebook or, you know, what, you know put any X big company um, because, of, because, you know, you're risk averse. I think the risk aversion is, um, it's, being, it's being positioned as, as risk aversion, but it's actually fear, right? Fear of failure or, or something like that. It's not true risk aversion. There's usually pretty limited financial risk that, the, that, that people are taking too. So anyway, that's like, obviously that's like an extremely intense opinion but just thought i'd share (laughs) no no iman we 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 love intense opinions around here so uh no really really appreciate it and it broadly aligns with uh, how we feel um doctors can contribute to the entrepreneurship or just broadly the business space and and the the general risk aversion that's certainly a big element there Uh, you mentioned fear of failure and i just wanted to call out that I, i just finished up uh leadership and happiness class here at HBS. And, and people always find it funny that we teach happiness at, at the Harvard Business School, but uh, I guess it's needed. Uh, and we talk a lot about why people are risk averse and, and, and we've landed on that fear of failure. It's not really failure. It's just like what you'll feel like when you fail or the thought of failing uh, that always emotionally and physically stunts us. A couple of things I wanted to reflect on is you use an interesting word that is sort of a dirty word for a lot of uh, clinicians networking because they think that's like, you know, there's nothing good to come out of it. And, and I tell people to think about it a little bit more organically. How I approach networking is 
how can I be helpful to another human being? And hopefully they approach it similarly. And if there's mutual benefit to be had, then all the better for it. But I really try to orient it around, you know, providing help to other people. And the last thing I wanted to really reflect on is this notion of bandwidth and and what are the types of people you can help. And so I still spend about an hour or two every Friday speaking with physicians or pre-meds at various stages and, and trying to help them make the leap. And sometimes I'll have conversations like, you know, what is consulting? So very, very preliminary conversations. And then sometimes I'll have very advanced conversations, very nuanced conversations. But I've started to hone in a little bit more on the types of people and the stage of the types of people that I can help because, like you said, I have limited time. And it's really, how can I best use my 30 minutes to help someone make that leap? So for you, it obviously doesn't make sense to speak with pre-meds. It, it makes sense to speak with you know, clinicians who've already made that jump into entrepreneurship. You can have the most value there. But this has been a great conversation so far, and, and we can talk for hours, but Alex uh, had a couple of questions, and I'll pass it on to him. Awesome. Thanks, Chad. And thank you, Iman, for the insights. It's been amazing kind of listen to them. I think the notion of cost saving in healthcare is something that we've spent a lot of time thinking about. So Chad and I have been thinking about a couple of really interesting ideas in the digital therapeutic space. And we've spent almost six months speaking to all the different stakeholders and specifically healthcare payers and insurance agencies. And it's been a surprise to learn how much cost is an important element in the decision-making of healthcare payers. So certainly appreciate your point there. Maybe I'll, I'll focus the, the first two questions on incredible health. And I really love how the company is solving market failures in the nurse recruitment space using AI and computational tools. My, my PhD is in healthcare machine learning, so I'm, I'm quite excited about the impact of the technology in the healthcare space. Just looking at some statistics, I think on average, uh, Incredible Health can provide 17% uh, increase in salary and 15% decrease in commuting time. And I really like the, the optimization element of it. So I'd love to understand kind of how the idea for the company was born and uh, what were the challenges that you faced when the idea was taking off and how did you overcome them? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, a lot of my family members and friends are doctors and surgeons who, who practice here in the U.S., right? And they were often complaining to me about understaffing. Uh, it would come up in dinners, lunches, Thanksgiving, et cetera, right? Uh, particularly the surgeons, you know, they're understaffed or not enough OR nurses, for example. And um, at the same time, Rome Portlock is my co-founder. He's our chief technology officer here, software engineer, MIT, all that great stuff, right? But he, he has several family members that are nurses. And they were saying, hey, I'm experienced and I'm qualified. And I apply to 10 places or 15 places and I don't even hear back. And if I hear back, it takes like months, you know? And we're like, okay, this doesn't make any sense, right? Because healthcare is the biggest labor sector in the country by number of workers uh, and by dollars spent on the workers in total. And then also healthcare is the industry in the U.S. that has the biggest labor shortages, right? Our demand for healthcare as a country keeps going up. And, uh, and, and you know, there's more and more strain, in, you know, on the healthcare system because our population is aging. But the supply of workers has not, has not kept up with the demand. And so given that environment, we're like, everybody should be hired like really fast, especially the nurses and other, you know, clinicians that are under, that are, that are in short supply. Once we really dug into it, we discovered the tools, the technology, the processes that uh, are being used for hospitals and health systems when they're hiring, like really hasn't changed in like 20 years, you know? 
And so we figured there just has to be a better way. There just has to be. And so that's how the product came about. There's a few unique things about it. Um, in a nutshell, you know, hospitals and health systems use incredible health custom matching technology to hire nurses in permanent roles in 20 days or less. It normally takes them 80, 90 days or longer. And so the three unique things about our product is first, the employers apply to the talent instead of the other way around. So that creates a very nurse-centric or candidate-centric experience. The nurses absolutely love that um, because they get interview requests and they get a nurse gets to decide which interviews to accept or decline. Second is uh, we've automated a lot of the screening of the talent. And so we're able to serve up high quality talent at scale um, using our screening algorithms um, and the work we do there. And then the third piece is the custom matching algorithms. It is when you are a nurse recruiter at, um, you guys are in Boston right now, at Beth Israel Leahy and you log in, like you do not want to see, you know, a hundred nurses. You want to see like 12 that are the exact right fit for you and for Beth Israel Leahy at the time. And the same thing from a nurse's perspective. Like, let's say you are a highly sought after ICU nurse or OR nurse. Like, you don't want to hear from 100 employers. You want to hear from four or five that are the right fit for you. So that curation that's driven by our software and our algorithms is critical, is critical to success as well. So the end result of all of that is hiring that happens three times faster. Um, so in 20 days instead of, you know, 82 days, uh, it's also re results in dramatic cost savings. So for every single location we work with, a hospital location we work with, we save at least $2 million per year uh, that they don't have to spend on temporary workers or travel nurses, that they don't have to spend on overtime costs. So the product in itself, like it, it pays for itself, essentially. Awesome. No, that's fantastic, Iman. I've been looking at the space uh, slightly through my work at the hedge fund and the shortages and the supply demand imbalance is really striking. I've covered the home health segment for some time. I would love to understand your perspective on how you view that balance between supply and demand moving forward, because what, what we've seen during the pandemic is really an explosion and valuation of many companies that are trying to, to solve this problem. And the shortage was, like I think, much, much more pronounced during the pandemic. So I would love if you can tell us a little bit more how you think about that shortage moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, we, we focus only on permanent workers, right? Like, so all the nurses hired on our platform are permanent employees of the hospitals and health systems. And we've really stayed away from the temporary space. I know that there's many other companies, um, both public and private, that are pursuing the temporary um, labor, labor uh, market. Um, I would say that there's two big problems in this market. First is the inefficiency, and the second is the underlying supply shortage. I think everything I've talked about so far for Incredible Health is really about solving the inefficiency in the market. So what for the supply that is there, how come they're not finding the demand and vice versa? And so our, you know, the algorithms and the software and the products and so on solves that, that, that challenge. But you're right, there's a bigger underlying issue, which is like we just simply do not have enough supply. Um, this, this problem has existed before the pandemic. It, 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 yes, it was exacerbated by the pandemic, and it's projected to be here long afterwards as well. You know, we just released our third annual nursing in the time of nursing in the time of COVID report just a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, one of the most striking statistics is one third of nurses um, are considering leaving uh, the profession permanently in 2022. Right. And a lot of that has to do with fatigue, burnout, you know, different di di different um, areas. And then the other thing is we are seeing the highest ever turnover numbers in nursing than we ever have in the history of U.S. healthcare as well. Again, that's related to fatigue, burnout, being overworked, et cetera, right? So um, 
that this is a this is a challenging time that 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 the that the healthcare workforce is going through. Um, as far as Incredible Health's role, like our vision is to help healthcare professionals live better lives, and the mission is to help them find and do their best work. It is very important to us that we uh, ensure that Incredible Health is not just the place to find a job, but it's also the place where they, you manage your career. And we do want to play a big role in in solving the underlying supply shortages as well. So, for example, we offer free continuing education to every single nurse in the country, so they never have to pay out of pocket. You know, nurses in the U.S. pay $240 million out of pocket just for continuing education. I mean, why? That shouldn't be the case. I mean, they can get it for free from Incredible Health. It's in our apps. It's accredited in all 50 states. And at the end of the day, this is content that's accredited online. Why pay out of pocket for it, right? Um, So that's like our first dipping our toes in in terms of like helping with upskilling and and the learning of, 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 of nurses. We also provide free salary estimators to every single nurse in the country. And that's available to everyone as well. So in the hopes that, you know, more and more people understand, uh, frankly, the relatively good salaries that nurses get in this country, um, uh, especially relative to the amount of education that's needed to achieve that salary. Um, also, we provide an advice platform for nurses inside our apps. So it's a, like, like a Quora for nurses where they can really um, ask questions and other nurses who are specialized in their areas will answer those questions. So the high, it's a very high quality. So it's very important us that over time that we do also play a role in solving this underlying supply shortage and supporting nurses throughout their careers, not only not only when they're just finding a job. Iman, thank you for sharing that. I think it links to my next question around kind of the mental well-being and the career satisfaction of healthcare workers. I think what we've seen during the pandemic is during the pandemic itself, hospitals were in survival mode. Now, as the pandemic subsides, I think one of the biggest problems that are servicing is burnout. And I think you've, you've mentioned great statistics around that in terms of third nurses considering leaving the profession, etc. I, I really do share your, your belief that technology can be used for good to make massive impact on people. So would love to understand kind of how do you view the role of incredible health uh, moving forward, solving for the satisfaction and mental well-being of nurses. What's the expansion plans for the company? Kind of, Do you think of going into other segments of healthcare staffing? So perhaps looking at staffing categories beyond nurses. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I mentioned earlier our vision, you know, of helping healthcare professionals live better lives and the mission of helping them find and do their best work. And we take that vision and mission like pretty seriously. And I guess what it means tactically speaking is, yeah, we, we are defining a new category um, and, and becoming market leaders in healthcare labor. And the goal is we are trying to transform how this industry operates. Um, I, I would say that in order to achieve a lofty vision and mission and goal like that, uh, it's not enough to just be a job platform. You can't just be the place where nurses find a job. You really do need to be the place where healthcare workers are managing their career. And our goal is to have a 30-year-long or like, you know, career-long relationship um, from a product standpoint with, with the healthcare workers as well. Um, and I think that is, is what it's going to take to win uh, and, and, and to become market leaders in, the, in this market. Uh, for nurses specifically, yeah, they are going through um, unprecedented levels of burnout and, 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 and you know, issues with mental well-being. We do also offer, you know, there's a, there are some mental health features built into our into the Incredible Health, health apps as well. 
And everything we offer to nurses is free at the end of the day, whether it's the hiring product, the mental health products, the advice platform, so on. It's always free. Um, I would hope that over time that more, uh, more and more um, parties participate in, in, in creating delightful experiences for healthcare workers, um, whether it's the employers or the um, or government or technology um, vendors like ours, like, you know, just continuing to really, really push, push that forward. Because uh, it, it's going to be critical to, for the viability of the future of the U.S. healthcare system. I think our, the biggest threats to U.S. healthcare is, the, is, is our workforce and the workforce um, not being large enough, not, you know, and not, not operating as efficiently as it, as it should be um, in order to provide in, and in order for, you know, nurses to pursue a, and other healthcare workers to pursue delightful careers. Thanks, Iman. I think this is very insightful. And uh, Shad and I have been recently speaking to a couple of researchers in the Harvard ecosystem who are doing some really interesting work on behavioral interventions for healthcare workers to help them cope with, with care that they provide to patients, especially patients who are, for example, with terminal illness. And I think this kind of links back to my clinical experience in, in healthcare where we I've seen that we as physicians and, and as healthcare workers tend to not pay enough attention to the impact and toll that uh, clinical care and patient care can take on the individual. And I think medical schools or even nursing schools are perhaps not providing individuals and students with the tools on how to manage that. And so I certainly appreciate the point that you've mentioned in terms of this being top of mind for incredible health. And I think it, it's such an important point. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing I did, did want to mention as well. Sorry, Paul. You, sorry. About no worries. No, no, no. I, I think this, this goes <laughs> okay. this goes back okay. to the conversation. So, so please. Go, got it. So, you know, one question we have to ask ourselves is, why is it that healthcare workers are so much more dissatisfied than technology workers, for example? Um, and so when you really, when, you know, we collect data from um, nurses that are signing up on our platform, right? And it's like, we ask, like, why are you looking for a different job? And the number one reason is I'm looking to advance my career. I'm trying to upskill, cross-train, move into management, whatever it is. The second is I'm, I'm looking for a more flexible schedule. You know, the third is I'm trying to relocate or reduce my commute time or, you know, something to do with their geography. And then the fourth is more pay, right? And it's, a, and it's in that order. And so what that means is, like, what, what I take from that is, like, what is the role of the rest of us, technology, employers, government, et cetera, in addressing those challenges? Um, so if, like, the, the, we're noticing that the employers that are heavily investing in career advancement, for nurses, for example, right, is, is they are winning, you know, they are, they are hiring more and more talent and, and their retention rates are better too. Um, the teams that are, the employers are investing more in flexible scheduling, you know, offering more scheduling options um, instead of, instead of just, you know, these fixed shifts, right, uh, tend to also um, retain talent better and, and hire more. And so we, we really need to, you know, address sort of these underlying challenges that we're hearing from the healthcare workers. You know, we talked about mental health being one and burnout. Certainly there's a whole set of solutions there. But I mean, more and more employers need to be addressing career advancement, you know, and, and training. More, more need to be addressing flexible scheduling and so on. And that, that, that is how the overall like industry continues to evolve and um, become much more talent centric at the end of the day. And I would say the tech industry is like, 
15 years ahead of healthcare in the in the in these areas at this point. Yeah, no, this is actually a very interesting point. It links back to something that we discussed in leadership development class a couple of days ago on the role of employee appreciation and, and showing as a company and as a manager that you really appreciate your employees. The class was around you know the concept of love languages when we take it in personal relationships there is five love languages. And there's been a bit of academic work on the application of love languages in the workspace. And we we were basically looking at a case study of a mining company in the Midwest where they basically provided an optional survey to the employees to identify their love languages and encourage them to share with other people within the work, within basically like their, their colleagues. And so I just think it, it's a very interesting concept and it links perhaps to, to the flexibility and career advancement. Because again, when as an employer and as a manager, when you show your employee that path forward, it is a sign of appreciation that you really appreciate the work and, and kind of the effort that they've been putting in the company. This is very interesting. I guess another question that is a little bit tangential, but I think it links to your experience Given the shortage of staff within the healthcare ecosystem, one question that, I mean, I've thought about from multiple perspectives is whether it's okay for people who train as medical doctors to go off the beaten path. I know it's a very philosophical question. I've thought about it from the perspective of also brain drain, especially in our region. I mean, at least in Syria, all my qualified friends have left the country simply because there is no opportunities inside. And some people also use kind of the same argument for medical doctors who have spent like six years training and, and then going off the beaten path. I mean, Chad and I are going off the beaten path and, and we have this podcast to encourage more of that. So like, I think our position is clear on it, but I would love to know how you think about this question. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I also wanted to make sure I address your expansion question from earlier too. Um, so uh I'll speak, look, the majority of my work experience at the end of the day has been in the U.S. So I'll, I'll sort of like, I sort of, let's, let's, let's stay within the context of the U.S. market. The U.S. is a, a very advanced economy. It is, a, it is an economy that uh, allows individuals like us to pursue whatever careers we want. <laughs> and, uh, and, it's, and, it, and generally, this country is very supportive of that, too. And, you know, it's the American dream, et cetera. Right. And, I, and for whatever reason, I, st- I do still be- I do still believe in that. Um, and at, at the end of the day, we're all trying to be to make the most of our careers and to be like the best versions of ourselves. At the end of the day, I really genuinely believe I am a I, w- I, I am a top entrepreneur. I don't think I would be a top anesthesiologist, to be, to be frank, right? Just given my skill sets, my interests, and, and, and my motivations, and so on. And um, I think it's a little bit of a disservice to say, hey, the, the medical doctors that are leaving medicine and pursuing these other fields are not having, are, 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 we're ignoring the impact that they're having, right? Um, at the end of the day, when it comes to software, entrepreneurship, and so on, like these very small teams and just some lines of code can transform an entire industry. And we've seen it over and over again in other industries. Um, and so why not, why not it happening in healthcare too? And so, um, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I definitely shy away from those that are arguing that, you know, doctors should stay doctors. 
Awesome. But I'll, of course, I'm, I'm obviously biased. <laughs> no, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's a very good point. And yeah. I think we're, we're just not measuring the impact in the same way, right? Like, I mean, for example, one of my mentors was a healthcare PE investor, and now he raised like one of the biggest funds in the healthcare space in growth equity and private equity. And like that will lead to a lot of major healthcare companies being formed, which will have massive impact on lives of patients. And so I think we're just not measuring apples to apples here. And I, I certainly agree with your point there. Perhaps the last question I'm aware of time is about uh, your experience as an immigrant. As an immigrant myself, and specifically also like family of doctors, kind of like the question of immigrant mentality and going off the beaten path is something that I had to think about. And I think it links back to the point that you've mentioned in terms of most of the MDs and MBAs having a risk-averse attitude. And I think that is more pronounced in immigrants. So I'd love to know how did you manage that trap of immigrant mentality? And how do you manage conversations with your family or doctors when you told them that you don't want to practice medicine anymore? Yeah, great question. So uh, look, the, 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 the one, there's a lot of positives to being an immigrant, right? Like uh, we are usually relentless. <laughs> we don't quit. Um, and our parents have drilled into us like the, 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 the need to pursue excellence, right? Uh, I think the, the, the area that I had to navigate carefully is, um, you know, le- leaving, you know, going off the beaten path. So there definitely was an expectation to continue um, career in medicine, particularly from my dad, uh, you know, pursuing residency, et cetera, et cetera, right? And um, I understand where he's coming from, and I understand where where many immigrants are coming from, because frankly, we, um, the decision to move to a different country is, is already a risk in and of itself. And then secondly, like, the context and the backgrounds, I mean, like, when you look at Sudan or Syria or whatever, like, there aren't, like... 15 different career paths that you can pursue. There's like three, you know, uh, and because, and a lot of that has to do with the economies uh, that are not, not nowhere near as advanced as the, that in the U S. And so like, you know, it's a different context altogether. Like, and so when, when I kind of explain this, uh, Hey, the U S is wide open. And by the way, you can pursue these careers and have a lot of fulfillment and, and so on. Then, then the conversation did become easier. I did want to quickly just mention this incredible health and our future plans. And um, yeah, the, the goal is to become a market leader. We, we already work with 500 hospitals across the country. We work with very big health systems like HCA Healthcare and Kaiser Permanente and Baylor Scott and White. We work with many academic medical centers like Stanford and Cedar sinai and Johns Hopkins and lots of community hospitals too. We've grown our you know, top line revenue by 400% last year alone. And um, we, we want to continue expanding geographically. We're now live in 23 states. And so hopefully by the end of 2022, plan to be in about 40 states, um, while still focus on nurses and hospitals. It's after that that we'd start adding uh, roles beyond nursing. Uh, you know, there's physical therapists and pharmacists and doctors and so on that can benefit from a product like this and where there's huge shortages. And then also pursuing other types of employers beyond hospitals, right? There's urgent care, surgical centers, home health, skilled nursing, so on. So eventually you need to take it all, but like, you know, as an entrepreneur, focus is important <laughs> and you need to be doing things really well as you're growing and maintaining customer delight, frankly, user delight, whether it's for, in our case, nurses or the employers. And so um, we're, we're taking a very systematic approach to it as well. Awesome. No, it's amazing to, to hear the expansion uh, plans of Incredible Health and kind of I'm super excited to keep up with the news and, and the expansion and the impact. Thanks for sharing that, Iman. Uh, I guess my last question is, uh, how can our audience keep in track of all the amazing things and all the 
that you and Incredible Health are doing. Yeah, so our website's incrediblehealth.com and you know we're on, on social media as well, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, so on. For me personally, I, I, am, I am active on Twitter on, and on LinkedIn. Feel free to reach out anytime. And let's do a quick example of net, what networking means, like back to what Shad was saying earlier. I'm gonna explicitly say this on the air. Alex and Shad, if you, got, if you decide to start companies, please let me know because I'd be interested in helping out and potentially even being an angel investor. And then my ask to you, to you is like, hey, I, I hope the HBS thing goes really well. If you or, your te- or any of your classmates are interested in working at Incredible Health, please reach out and let me know. We're hiring in every single function and every single role. Um, and, and, you know, you guys have the perfect backgrounds. So... Yeah. Awesome. That's fantastic. Well, I'm sure that uh, a lot of HBS folks would be interested in roles at, at Incredible Health and especially with the impact that they can achieve. So we'll make sure to amplify and kind of circulate the opportunity around. Shad, that was an amazing conversation with Iman. I really enjoyed it. I guess my two cents from the conversation are around the importance of creating a work environment and uh, teams where individuals feel that they are appreciated. I think Iman mentioned how they are investing heavily in the career development of nurses on incredible health. And I found it quite insightful what she mentioned around the statistics of why nurses want to move out of a nursing career. So I think it's very important for us as healthcare leaders to think about very intentionally creating the right environment for our teams and for our staff, where we make sure that we're creating the right career progression and development opportunities, and we're creating kind of the right infrastructure and the right frameworks that that make sure that team members and employees are feeling appreciated. So I found that quite a valuable insight. Yeah, no, completely agree, Alex. And you know, there were so many interesting insights from Iman's conversation and her advice today. I think one thing that stuck out to me was this notion of risk aversion amongst clinicians. And she sort of mentioned that the U.S. is very advanced economy where, you know, with any degree, you can pivot to to multiple adjacent career paths or sometimes non-adjacent career paths. And going, quote unquote, off the beaten path as a physician in the United States is lower risk than perhaps going off the beaten path, you know, where she grew up, maybe in Saudi Arabia or Sudan or where I grew up in Bangladesh or or in Syria where you grew up. So that's an element that just needs to be considered by folks in the U.S., by clinicians in the U.S., because you have to compare that risk to the opportunity cost of being uh, in a job or a career where you might not be wholly satisfied. Again, being a clinician is a very noble profession and and taking care of patients is full-time job as we say over and over again. But this is for people who may be burnt out or may have an expanding vision of what type of impact they want to have. You really have to compare the, the risk of going off the beaten path with the opportunity cost of being in a career that you might not be uh, wholly satisfied in. And I think just as human beings, and perhaps even more so as clinicians, we tend to overestimate the risk and underestimate the reward of doing something new. And I think 
it all comes down to that fear of failure that uh, Iman so eloquently talked about. I just thought that was super, super insightful and really enjoyed that conversation around risk aversion. Uh, I think for our audience members, uh, you know, keep listening, keep joining us for the next episode for more conversations with amazing physicians who have ventured off the beaten path. And remember to follow us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at POTBP Podcast. And to catch our latest podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. To get in touch with us, you can email us at physiciansoffthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. Take care.